Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean makes it super simple to launch a Kubernetes cluster in minutes. The DigitalOcean Kubernetes platform empowers developers to launch their containerized applications into a managed production-ready cluster without having to maintain or configure the underlying infrastructure. They seamlessly integrate everything with the rest of the DigitalOcean stack, including load balancers, firewalls, object storage spaces, and block storage volumes. They even have built-in support for public and private image registries like Docker Hub and Quay.io. Developers can now run and scale container-based workloads with ease with the DigitalOcean platform. Learn more and get started for free with a $50 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Everyone, this is the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stakoviak, editor in chief here at Change Log. On today's show, Jared and I are talking to Andre Stoltz, creator of Manyverse, a social network off the grid. It's open source and free in every sense of the word. We talk through the backstory, how a user's network gets formed, how data is stored and shared, why off grid is so important, Andre, and what type of user uses an off the grid social network. So a listener of the show, Yuri Oliviera, was listening to our episode on Mastodon and said he would love to hear one about Manyverse with Andre Stoltz. And P.S. his birthday is this month. Now that was April, so Yuri, happy belated birthday. And we were very happy to oblige after the show with Dominic Tarr, where we mentioned Scuttlebutt. I said, we got to get a show about this soon. Andre, you're a natural fellow to talk about it. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. Should we actually sing happy birthday or should we just let that go by? Let's not sing it. Uh, let's, let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hard, hard pass. Let's say it. Happy birthday, Yuri. Happy birthday. So we hope you enjoy the show. Andre, on your homepage, it says you're an open source freelancer. That caught Adam's eye, caught my eye a little bit. Not too many people call themselves that. Is that a special designation that you have for yourself or just couldn't think of something to say? Yeah, it's, it's actually quite hard to find a title for what I do. And I didn't want to use like, you know, very esoteric titles that just make people even more confused. So I just tried to use uh, terms that people use. I mean, freelancer, you usually think of them as self-employed people who do sort of contract work and then, you know, they do it from home. I am a person who's self-employed and I do work from home, Mm -hmm. but mostly what I do is open source. Um, For instance, my sources of revenue are open source donations. So I I run like uh, CycleJS Open Collective, which is you know, CycleJS is a framework for JavaScript and it has donations sometimes from backers, sometimes from companies. And I do a little bit of development on that and I get donations. Then there's the Miniverse Open Collective. I'm sure we're going to talk about Miniverse mm-hmm. and that's been also receiving donations. Then donations in total don't give me a living. So I also do uh, workshops to teach programming libraries and stuff like that. Those workshops give me income and also online training through different kinds of teaching portals. And all of these things, I mean, the common theme is always like some kind of open source. So that's, I think the title is quite okay. 
Yeah, yeah. it works. Yeah. Hey, you're primarily trying to do open source, but you're also a freelancer in the open source world. Yeah. Does that mean you actually take on some client work yeah. too? Yeah, I've done that. Um, I think last year I did it twice, if I'm not mistaken. But it's been something like, you know, uh, client needs like specific bug fixing that, you know, they mm. need specifically me or something because it's very, you know, sort of unique case and the other case was uh, they wanted to get uh, some projects started and they wanted to have like a nice project template and nice documentation set up. And so I basically was like helping kickstart the, the project. I do these things sort of maximum one month or two months. I try to not take very long projects because then it's, of course, time away from all these other things. And honestly, I try to make a small enough income so that um, like... I, I could try to maximize for money and buying stuff, but I try to just maximize for my savings so that mm-hmm. I can have enough time to work on these open source things that don't give money or revenue or anything like that. Absolutely. Sounds like you have other interests. One of those interests is, as I mentioned before, Scuttlebutt. You say Scuttlebutt Solar Punk yeah. on your Twitter bio, and Miniverse is a do you call it a Scuttlebutt client? We're going to get into all of the nitty gritty here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a Scuttlebutt client. It is. Some people like to talk about Scuttlebutt as as a place, like, you know, yeah. a social media platform. But I I really think it's it's like a protocol. So just as you have, you know, email as a protocol, then, of course, you need some kind of email app. It used to be Thunderbird, but of course, now we have like, you know, web apps. Right. And I mean, there's so many other protocols out there and Scuttlebutt is one protocol. And you need, of course, apps to make it work. So I love the way that you describe Manyverse on the homepage when you say free forever and you have kind of this pyramid or triangle of things that it doesn't have, which is a very interesting way of pitching something. No ads, no paywall, no data centers, no cloud, yeah. no cookies, no company, no investors, no token, no ICO. I'll run out of breath saying all the things <laughs> this doesn't have. I think it gets more interesting. No tracking, no spying, no analytics. No blockchain. Real minimalism pitch here and definitely setting apart from kind of the big corporate social networks that that we're all using on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So, I mean, often when people read these kind of things, you know, decentralized or something, there's some kind of catch in it. Let's say that you need to have the tokens in order to, I don't know, buy sort of views to your content and then that token, you actually end up buying it from the company that's running the thing. And then you're like, oh, now I see. What's the deal here? And of course, you know, sort of making money out of a thing is sometimes like fundamental for sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that like I'm I'm not saying that I don't make money whatsoever because obviously there's a donate page and there's always obviously people helping this project with donations. So if we want to go deep into why all of this uh, free stuff. I've been sharing a, a sort of theory uh, with some people that I still want to share this as a blog post, but we can do this as a podcast as well. Yes, let's do it. So I believe that open source is, is like the next frontier for disruption in software. And when you look at the big disruptions that happened in software, in the recent decades, um, for instance, we had at some point Microsoft being the dominant player and they sold software, they sold Windows or they sold Microsoft Office literally in a box, you know, right. that you would buy physically. 
And that would cost you what, like something like $400 per edition. So sort of like 2003, there was a Microsoft Office, right? Right. And that costed like what, $400 a box. And then the next version was 2007. So then that's like $400 for four years. And so this is essentially $100 per year. So then the thing that came after that, that disrupted all of this was, of course, the internet and the web and that growing so much. And then came players like, let's say, Google and other sort of SaaS players. I don't necessarily mention just, you know, let's imagine like Dropbox or Spotify or Facebook, all these other things. Uh And those, I mean, they sold software in a sense where they gave software uh, now not in a box. So you have the benefits of not having all of those logistic problems, right? Right. And essentially the revenue that they get per user per year is something around $10 per year or 20 or something like that. Now, the first bit, if you're like paying subscriptions, let's say uh, Netflix or Spotify, then you might end up actually paying $100 per year, which is still kind of the same level as uh, what Microsoft had, because it's kind kind of crazy when you think about it, that people are willing to pay nine dollars per month but when you put it as in are you willing to pay four hundred dollars every four years then it's kind of scarier but it's kind of the same thing plus you don't have to necessarily upgrade that old office version you could buy it and just say i don't need 2007 i'm going to run this for 10 years and it might still work 10 years later yeah but i think my point here is that we went from software as a product or software as a boxed product right in a box to software as a advertisement sustained service right and that shift that big shift uh happened with a 10x reduction in price for users and i think that um and you know a lot of people use google docs today which is exactly the use case for microsoft office right so there is a big benefit here for users that of course i pay much less and that's actually the real reason why people are so interested in google is that it's free right from their perspective it's like free and then, of course, I mean, when I say that it costs $10 per user per year, people are paying that still, uh, not in the form of dollars, but in the form of privacy, because obviously Google is getting that money because users exist. So people are paying still something, but with their privacy. And not everybody is comfortable paying that. So I think that in order to disrupt that, you have to do, be like 10 times cheaper. So uh, you really need to sort of reduce that cost of going from, you know, $10 per user per year to something like $1 per user per year. And you need to do that in a way that they don't need to pay with their privacy. So how are you going to do that? So I actually, you know, did the calculations and what I receive now for Manyverse through donations. So out of thousands of users, there's like 53 backers. So it's something like one out of 100 backers. Uh, no, no, one out of 100 users becomes a backer. And those users uh, or those backers, they donate approximately like five or six dollars per month. And if you do the math carefully, I mean, it's roughly uh, meaning that each user represents through some backer one dollar per year. Mm. So you kind of reach that uh, 10x reduction, but it has to be through the value proposition that you don't have to pay anymore through your privacy. So these things are actually sustainable in the sense that if you have uh, 10x less revenue, well, then it means that all your costs should be like 10x smaller or 20x smaller. So you can do that with like a smaller team of developers, of course, 
like you're not going to have hundreds or thousands you're going to have like dozens Mm -hmm. maybe in the at scale it also means that you don't have you shouldn't have costs such as infrastructure like servers so those things are also consistent with like uh, the metaverse uh, situation that we don't have like servers running we don't have that kind of cost and we just have developers or basically just me now and it's still like not sustainable i mean don't have that kind of like sustainability to have myself funded uh and i'm the only developer so far but the point is that at scale these things are sustainable if there's like one dollar per user per year then you do the math and with like a million users then you're probably going to have some kind of um yearly millionaire revenue which means like a team of a dozen people or something like that so the case for scale becomes even more important once you're going down with these costs right i think that's the sort of big gist of it it's not a business because donations don't have that kind of return on investment you don't have investors and i think that's the real key to the problem is that donation driven software if it would be investment driven it would actually be much bigger because investors would like make it big, you know? Yeah. But that's not the case. Mm. It would be interesting to go beyond Miniverse and maybe go out to other open collectives and see if you can do that same math on the number of users versus the number of dollars per capita. Yeah. And see if you still get to that one out of a hundred, basically. Yeah, I, I do have like a hint that that's kind of what's happening. If you look at bigger open collectives, there's like Babel and... Webpack and those have like Webpack has something like 100k right now in their open collective, uh-huh. and Babel has something around the same scale. And well, I do believe that yeah. Last time I calculated, like CycleJS, which is my framework, is a couple of thousands times smaller than Babel, for instance, in terms of like let's say npm downloads. Right. It takes a certain kind of person though to to forego, as you said before, some or to have your outlook on life in terms of income. You know, some people want to maximize income and it seems like you've got some personal, I don't want to say their morals, but just direction in life that makes it easier for you to forego income and gain other things in relation to that. Because some people might want to maximize. Maybe not easier, but more important. Yeah, exactly. Like your your priority, your level of importance, thank you, is sort of strive towards this way of life, whereas somebody else may not be that way. Um, you're talking about way of life as in uh, not having privacy violations or, or privacy costs? or Maximizing for income and the way you've been able to situate your income flow, I suppose. Yeah, I mean. You know, the fact that it's, you know, donate. We're talking about yeah. open source software as it relates to donations and being able to be, you know, an open source freelancer like you are creating open source backed by a community. Yeah. So, I mean, like, obviously, I am not driven by maximizing money because, you know, otherwise I'd be doing different things because it's much easier to do it in other things. Uh, And also, like, I'm not living in countries where I would need to maximize my income. For instance, I'm from Brazil and I know that, like, there you really need to, like, you know, find your own way because there's not, like, this kind of welfare state, which is in Finland. And I also know that the United States is roughly the same and like you have to actually look for a lot of money because that's how life is so i I do think that it helps that like even if i don't try to maximize money i'm still gonna have like public health care and gonna be fine i think that kind of safety really plays a big role in what i'm doing and then you, you know you start thinking okay what is actually meaningful in life and then i see like you know all these problems out there and i see like well i could just sit down and program this kind of stuff and maybe that would be helpful for people Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean so that's kind of like 
a little bit why I'm doing this. But um, what I was trying to say before is that I do think that there's a big potential in a new uh, wave of software that is 10x cheaper. And this is still like an early exploration of ideas, but I think that it doesn't need to be necessarily MIT licensed. So there's different experiments in uh, licenses with open source or barely open source or debatably open source. Uh, one of them is called License Zero. Have you heard of that? Yep. License Zero is essentially that, you know, depending if you're a business uh, or, or not, if you're individuals, then you're going to have a license uh, that you can use the software forever, like a free and open source. But if you're a business, you have to buy a license. So it's kind of like a, a business, even though the code is always open. Mm-hmm. I think that's very interesting. I think there should be like a lot more experiments in uh, licenses because Something like uh, community donations or uh, open source donations, it's essentially like out of 100 users, one of them will pay voluntarily. Right. And that means that essentially like those 100 people are sort of like uh, abstractly sort of getting together and paying it collectively. That's not what they do like as, a, as an actual dynamics. But from your perspective, like if you reach thousands, then those sort of thousands will pay you back. And I think there's there's a potential of like all kinds of creative licenses here. I'm not like I'm not uh, implying something specific. I'm just implying like a, a a big field of of innovation that could happen in licenses where you could do something like you know um, for instance in your city people in in this city are not allowed to use this software unless the city buys a license for that software, and then everybody in that city could use that software. So then. You have incentive for, let's say, the city to get together and sort of like chim in and sort of out of their public income or whatever. The government would like pay for this license so people in that city can have that softer like. And then the alternative would be, well, you can still use it, but it would be illegal. And these kind of things kind of worked, for instance, with, as it called, Sublime Text, the IDE. You could use it, right, for free, but it would just nag with you all the time. That right. You're actually not paying, right? And it sort of works when at scale, that's the, that's the key. So at scale, uh, enough people are going to understand that, okay, what I'm doing is wrong. I should actually pay for this. And then they pay and then it's actually a business, you know? Right. It's interesting because there's parallels there with the startup world where you have a founder, an entrepreneur who's willing to forego, uh, like they could make more money getting a nine to five. Mm. They're willing to forego that because when they are successful at scale, there's a much larger financial upside in that case. And it seems like what you're saying here is these new style, not just social networks, but potentially all sorts of kind of software where you're providing it in this way to communities and a subset of that community is going to represent them financially that at like in the small, it's not really going to work out for an individual or especially a team, but at scale, it starts to make more sense. Maybe it's not at the same levels as, you know, a for-profit business, but it's sustainable. Yeah, it's sustainable. And uh, I think the difficulties with becoming sustainable are mostly related to like initial capital and that kind of stuff. Because, of course, like a startup that just, you know, a a typical software as a service startup that has no investors, they will have a very hard time, right? Yeah, they will have a hard time. So it's the same case with uh, donation driven open source software. They Mm -hmm. just have a hard time similarly because of this lack of like investment. But I mean, these are these are things that we can solve. I mean, 
in different ways, maybe legally, maybe in other ways. But what I'm trying to uh, also point towards is that once you build something uh, open source, or let's say once you build something from this next wave of software, then you won't go back to the previous one. For instance, once you're using Google Docs and you're, you know, you're sharing your basic documents with your friends and you're not actually paying physical dollars, you're not going to go back to Microsoft Office and pay like $100 per year for a box. You know, you're not going to do that. And I think that obvious next step is also happening like gradually with open source. So for instance, um, a lot of people use the VLC, uh, Video LAN uh, media player, and that's open source. And you're not going to go back to paying a similar kind of proprietary software for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the situation is that once you build something open source and high quality, right. which has finances, and I mean, it has funds and it can maintain itself constantly, you basically win. It's disruptive. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you, that's it. It's disruptive. So I think that is probably going to happen in many cases. Um, it's very difficult, but given enough people trying and enough different countries and life situations and whatever, at some point we're going to start like open sourcing all these different kind of use cases. And I think, uh, for instance, Mastodon is a very interesting success case because the main developer, as far as I understand, is like full-time funded mm-hmm. to do it. And it has this like wave going on. So it could be the case that like maybe 10 years from now, Twitter is like, no, no one's going to go back to Twitter because, you know, obviously there's this thing, Mastodon, you know, could be. I'm not, I'm not necessarily implying that. I'm just saying sure. that there's, uh, there's a tendency that once you make something even cheaper, like you don't need to pay in privacy or whatever, mm-hmm. then you're not going to go back to the brief. I think there's an education, I don't know, not roadblock, but uh, there's education that has to happen because. For many people, the Google Docs version of the software is free. Like people don't value their privacy in dollar terms or in, in very much, just they don't value it. Um, I think we're getting to where we're having enough friction with corporations running these free services, especially you know with Twitter and Facebook when you have the all sorts of situation going there with free speech, you know, situations, of course, privacy with with all sorts of hacks happening and whatnot. Like people are starting to see the blowback of that, but I think a lot of people think that stuff already is free. And so that 10x cost reduction requires a lot of education to for them to realize, no, you're mm. this isn't this isn't free. You think it's free, but it's not free. Here's something that's actually free. Yeah. And I think that might take a while to ramp up. And on the flip side of that too, like here's something that's actually free, but is it really? Is the subtext of like the behind the scenes thoughts that someone's thinking is like, sure, I trusted Facebook or Twitter. Could I also trust Manyverse or something like that? And it's like, mm-hmm. they're going to always think, but is it really? Right. Yeah. Well, on the privacy note, I mean, on one hand, yes, I agree with you. A lot of people don't seem to value their privacy. On the other hand, if they wouldn't actually value their privacy, um, then Facebook would not have changed their mission to be, you know, privacy centered. And Google would not have done that as well, like with the recent Google I.O. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that, though, because there's so many people that's, that continue to use Facebook that I talked to. I'm like, you realize they're selling your data, right? Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason why you see this change is because there's so much media around the change. You know, the fact that Zuckerberg went to Congress and was briefed and all that good stuff, like, that's probably why those changes are happening. Not because users are like, hey, I want my privacy. 
It's a small subset that's asking for it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Not many demanding it by the leaving in droves. But it is also the the people who are aware and loud and consistently talking about these things tend to be the influencers who will move the general public over time. It's just that, right. you know, you kind of have that wave of adoption even where you have the early adopters. Um, and then here comes the the masses. Well, the masses don't care. Like they're in terms of like they care, but not like the early adopters do. So they just kind of follow behind. So I agree with with Andre that there are things that we're seeing which are indicating that that privacy is is becoming and will continue to become something that people care about more. It matters. We just think that we've had free lunch for like the last fifteen years or ten yeah. years, and we haven't. Yeah, I mean these things also take a long time. So for instance, Microsoft was quite dominant for a long time and didn't change their message for a very long time and after a while they did and you know on one hand i really do agree that people don't actually value privacy and i don't think that i should engage in that much like education in the sense that these people just they they know those things already they're already educated they just choose to not care you know um but i think that like the the thing with privacy is that it's not it's not a thing in itself, you know? It's when the lack of privacy expresses itself in other ways. Then you start mm-hmm. actually caring. Like if it's, you know, like, I don't know, my passwords got stolen or, you know, my company details were abused or I'm seeing ads about this thing that I really, really don't want anyone to know or... When it's, you know, everybody's privacy is violated, then the, the person uh, violating, not violating, but like, you know, abusing the privacy, they are in a unique position to have more power. And, you know, we could arguably say that Zuckerberg is already like the president of the world. And then you have all kinds of other, you know, like all of the um, societies, um, like Western societies like Europe and the United States, they're sort of asking Zuckerberg to be accountable for their politics, which is like a crazy idea, right? So it's not anymore privacy. It's it's about politics. It's about yeah, it is. So I don't I don't think privacy in itself is a, like a compelling thing. It's more like you know if you don't have it, it expresses itself as a problem in other ways. Yeah, but still, I'm still not like not that strong on defending privacy. I don't think that's my thing, and that might sound a little bit inconsistent but um so the thing that i'm really um looking for with manyverse which confuses people quite often or just makes them wonder is uh is the focus on off-grid that to me is like the biggest thing so the property of you know i i'm not building a social network that's more private i'm building a social network that's off the grid This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud-native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. 
GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org Kubernetes. So why is off-grid so important to you? So off-grid is a strategy to get somewhere. Basically, the internet and how it works is, is kind of broken. Um, it's not the best of what it should be. So when they created the internet, of course, they had this idea that, you know, it would allow computers to talk to each other in an end-to-end -end fashion. Uh, and then they didn't have enough IP addresses and for security reasons they also wanted to have like a bridge layer between a local area network and the whole internet so they created this thing called nat which does address translation which means that you can share an, an address an ip address with many other computers it turns out that it would be very nice if the internet uh, would have one unique ip address for each computer that doesn't change no matter where you are because then it could work like phone numbers right of course you can just call people with phone numbers that's like really easy uh, we don't have that for the internet which is like mind-blowingly weird uh -huh. it's sad and then it actually turns out that we don't we can't build a lot of applications because of that um, so we turn to centralized services that give us something like that right Even, let's say your username on twitter is essentially like a phone number a lookup yeah but you know it's like a combination of of uh, letters that doesn't change and you can always reach that person with that thing. So we reached out to those platforms so they can give us that capability. And you know, IPv6 came along and we tried to, tried to fix the internet, but I don't think we're gonna get that. So how does off-grid uh, fit into all this? Essentially, uh, we need to put back uh, most of these uh, network capabilities or the, or sort of like the end-to-end -end principle means that all of the important software is actually in the endpoints. So it's actually on the end devices and the end software. So by doing that, we can sort of start building a new internet. But it starts with the applications because one of the things that they've tried to do many times is sort of like, okay, let's make a new protocol for the internet. And then after that, let's just hope that everybody builds apps and use it, uses it. And that hasn't worked. There's a couple of um, protocols, I think. One of them that I read was... I can't remember the name, I'm sorry. But um, there, there's these sort of very alternative uh, architectures for the internet. Um, but if you build something that works entirely on the, on the app, on the end device, then you can start building different uh, transport layers. So you can use the old internet, the current internet as we know it, to transfer data in quirky ways, but you can get it done. Or you can use uh, different protocols, let's say um, Bluetooth, to transfer data from A to B. And Bluetooth is not necessarily the internet, right? It's just one type of transport that works from device to device. And you can also use a local area networking. And all of these things are not that compelling for people like in developed nations, nations such as United States and America, because we have internet most of the time or all of the time. Right. But there's actually a lot of people who don't have that. And it's uh, in the number of billions. And these people are just waiting to have good internet connection so they can use all these apps. So there's a compelling case for those people if they would have an app that looks like what we have today, but doesn't require internet connection. 
then they can use uh, Bluetooth and they can use uh, Wi-Fi to replace the use case for the internet. Of course, it's more quirky, but the point is that if you can get that use case of, let's say, social networking, and you can make it uh, sort of self-sufficient in the end user device and in the app, then um, you can have the internet connection as like a optional thing. If you have it, it's great. Okay, you can use it. But then you can have alternative sort of other transports. You can have like the new internet, you can have Bluetooth, and in this way, you can sort of start to transfer this use case from the old internet to the new internet in a very gradual way. So you can still support both the old internet and the new internet. And all of this is tied to sort of reaching the underconnected world because uh, they actually have a big potential to start using a social networking app. While in the developed world, we don't actually have like a big desire to switch, right? Switching is actually the very difficult thing. Right. So I, I actually don't have hope that people would switch on the basis of privacy, you know? Mm-hmm. I really don't have any hope that people would do that. Mm. But I do have a big hope that people will start using something that they've always wanted to use, but they haven't had internet, you know? So then we're talking actually about millions of people in Africa and the Amazon rainforest in Brazil, for instance, that would really be interested in using this. And then you have like a very uh, fast growth growth sort of vector. And then like this thing could sort of grow and become big at scale. And then we're talking about sort of like an alternative internet mm-hmm. maybe um, growing there. So that's kind of like the big plan with off-grid. So it sort of has to work without the internet so that we can support alternative internets. That's essentially the, the nutshell. Gotcha. So admittedly, Adam and I are in the highly on-grid bubble mm-hmm. because when we when we talk about this we're like it seems like cool ideas but it's not super compelling to us because it's like well i'm always online so off you know offline first or off grid we're just in that you know the bubble where we we don't know what that life is like and so definitely you know interesting to hear i, I mean i only go offline if i'm in a subway or an airplane and they're fixing those problems right mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> not about the subways but they're fixing the air airplane problem but obviously there's millions. Yeah, the Wi-Fi is in the airplane. Yeah, exactly. There, there's millions of people who aren't in this circumstance. And like you said, they aren't going to switch. They're going to finally use something they've always wanted to yeah. and haven't been able to because of their lack of connection or unreliable connection. So it's very interesting. Is the alternate internet more interesting to a developer like you making it or to the end user? Because I think most people are sort of like blind to what the internet really is, you know, and how data gets to their phone. For example, I connected a couple of devices that I have here locally that are just Bluetooth, but I get that. And general users may not really understand or care. Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, most of the people don't understand how things work. Yeah. But like the more you know how things work, the also the more you know the potential for misuse or, or corruption or things like that. And I think that the more we build our society on these uh, technologies, the more we're allowing very sort of mm-hmm. dystopian use cases to come up and maybe not in like 10 or 20 years, maybe, you know, actually Zuckerberg might be, you know, still nice enough guy, you know, <laughs> but what if when he dies and someone like horrible comes along, you know, like, you know, in USA you had like pretty okay presidents, but now you have this, I don't know, this dude and that's the point. I mean, at some point, these technologies that we're using might 
go into the hands of people that we really, really, really don't trust and really don't want to touch it. And if the entire society is, is doing that, then I think they're going to be surprised in a very negative way. So, I mean, having the new internet is uh, also like a, sort of like a political thing. I don't know what you call it. But I, I think there's a lot of aspects to it that are quite tangible. So, for instance, um, people use sort of a decentralized way with, with photos already. When they take a picture, it's always local. And then it's in your gallery app. And then you can share it with however way you want. So it gives a sense to people that, of course, like this is my picture, right? If I don't post it anywhere, it won't reach anywhere. Uh-huh. And I, I can choose who I share it with. I think that um, that metaphor or that use case, it's, it's quite obvious to people. They can do that with photos, but they can't do it with text, which is really weird. I mean, why can you do something with a richer media, but you can't do it with text? Well, you could take a picture of text, but the point being is that you can't just like, it's not that common to have textual content or messages shared in this fashion. And I think uh, people would, would understand it if they would just compare it with uh, what the use case that they use now mm. with pictures. So there's a lot of arguments that, you know, the internet, and then of course, from like a, like a developer's perspective, you can also see a lot of new use cases that you could build with this kind of decentralized stuff that you couldn't build today with the current internet. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to come up with some ideas here, but yeah, can't find one right now. But well, this is built on top of Scuttlebutt, right? So you've got this underlying protocol. This is a client. How does the network form? You you talked about a world where phone numbers and IP addresses could be you know unique to a device. Talk about how the network actually develops. Is it one giant network, and you incrementally add people to? yourself like just describe that for me i'm, I'm kind of lost on how this network actually gets formed yeah so scuttlebutt is like um it's a local database where you you know increment your database with new content that you post and then the question of how to share that data with others is you know you form networks they could either be ephemeral networks let's say if you join some wi-fi and that wi-fi has other devices connected to it then you can sort of exchange data with those other devices but that is a connection that's ephemeral because you, you're not always connected to that Wi-Fi and those other devices not always there. But that's one legitimate way of sharing data in Scuttlebutt is with these ephemeral connections. Um, the less ephemeral ones are through the internet and we use intermediate servers called pubs. A lot of people um, think that pubs are very central to Scuttlebutt. I don't believe in that because I, I'm also devising some other forms of servers. but it's just enough to know that pubs are just one way how you can exchange data between Alice and Bob. And the way that it works is sort of like a pub is mirroring your data. And uh, it's also mirroring Bob's and Alice's data. So it's sort of like a hub there that sort of replicates what all these devices have. And then uh, once you connect to that pub, you will get the most recent data from all of those users. Um, It doesn't need to be like a massive amount of users. It could just be like a couple of friends that share one pub and they post constantly on there. And then you could have like a constellation of many pubs and depending who you connect to, you're going to get their updates. But the important thing is that if pub goes down, then no data is lost because it was just mirroring what everybody had. So you connect to another pub that gives you like a 
path to your other friends, then you get can get the data from that other sense. Mm. So so from that other server. So it's not a network that is made sort of permanent. It's a network that is depends on who you want to connect to. So the core idea in Scuttlebutt is that you define who are the people that you're interested in or the your friends, and then you can get data from them through whatever means are possible, such as ephemeral connections or pubs. And there's also new ways. Uh, I'm building one of these called through a distributed hash table. The distributed hash table is what um, BitTorrent uses and what DAT uses. And it's essentially like a big lookup that is spread around multiple computers and they just bounce the, the request back and forth until it reaches the right destination. So you could also uh, get updates from your friend through a distributed hash table. Huh. So it's really about uh, choosing who you want to connect to and then getting their updates through whatever means work, essentially. So let's say that I want to connect with you. All I know is Andre's a cool guy. I like to scuttlebutt with him or, or what do you guys call it? Do you do miniverse? Do you, I like to just hang out with him on this thing. <laughs> yeah. What do I like? What, what do I start? What do I do? Do I have to have your name? Do I need a device ID or do I go to a pub? What's it look like for a user? Yeah. So um, the use case for Scuttlebutt is to connect friends with friends. So it's not uh, so well suited for, let's say, connecting strangers to friends. Um, like for instance, in Twitter, you can look up a person and follow them. As an email, you could just toss an email to a random stranger, right? These things work. Right. The downside of those is that you can also get messages from people you really don't want to get messages from. And in a de decentralized system without moderation, right? You can get actually very, very undesired messages. Well, <laughs> essentially email spam is very, very undesired messages. Yes. So Scuttlebutt sort of shields you from that by only focusing on uh, friends that you have opt-in. So essentially your friends and your friends of friends. So you sort of opt into semi-strangers, which are friends that are friends with yours, and those are allowed to send messages to you. But that said, um, there, it's, it's also technically possible to build a way where users could get uh, my messages, even if they're complete strangers. So one of the things I experimented with recently was I built a type of server that mirrors my data, only my data, no one else's data. And then you could just literally go to that server and request the invite code. And the server would always give you an invite code no matter who you are. And then you would get my data. It's essentially like an RSS feed. And it's actually like set up right now as we speak. The server's there. If I would give you the address, you, or if you would know the address mm -hmm. by yourself, then you could get my data and that's it. But the downside is that I would not get your data, which means that I would not see your comments, right? I would just broadcast messages, but I wouldn't get yours unless I would literally opt in to, to get your, your data. So Scuttlebutt is really not suited for getting messages from strangers, such as email. But it's also the same mechanics that sort of shields you from these stranger interactions. And when, when you think about someone that ha like someone who's really famous on Twitter, their mentions are probably like a nightmare, right? Sure. Like how could you even filter that thing? doesn't even have a spam filter or something like that. Well, maybe maybe to some extent. Well, nowadays they do have filters, but anyway, it's probably still a nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not the use case for Scuttlebutt. And I think what Scuttlebutt is trying to 
achieve is the so-called um, trust graph. So um, a network of uh, trusted peers. And uh, there's a lot of peer-to-peer protocols that allow you to essentially connect with any peer as long as they have this piece of content. Let's say uh, BitTorrent, right? You want this content and you just connect to any peer that has that. But Scuttlebutt is a bit the opposite. It's like you don't want to connect to any peer, but you want a specific peer, right? Let's say your friend, and you're actually happy with any content that they give you. So it's sort of the opposite. Instead of specific content from any peer, it's specific peer, any content. And it's really good for that. So it's really good for a network of people that you're interested in and you're fine with getting any of their content and having like enough of these that you're subscribing to, then you're going to actually get an interesting database and it's, it's going to be um, meaningful to you, essentially. You're not going to have these stranger interactions. And in, in, a, in a practical sense, um, having uh, friends of friends is actually a lot of strangers. Yeah. So yeah. for instance, right now I have uh, 12,000 accounts uh, on my computer available offline. I don't know 12,000 people, but they are somewhat connected to me. And it's still a reasonable amount of uh, data in the sense that it's not too much that it blows up my computer storage, but it's not too little that it's just my friends. This episode is brought to you by Git Prime. Git Prime helps software teams accelerate their velocity and release products faster by turning historical Git data into easy to understand insights and reports. Because past performance predicts future performance, Git Prime can examine your Git data to identify bottlenecks, compare sprints and releases over time, and enable data-driven discussions about engineering and product development. Ship faster because you know more, not because you're rushing. Get started at gitprime.com slash changelog. That's G-I-T-P-R-I-M-E dot com slash changelog. Again, gitprime.com slash changelog. Let's talk about the user type because I'm I'm sitting here back here thinking about this movie called Boiler Room where we're in great movie. Ben Affleck is famous for saying this. He says we don't hire brokers; we train new ones. And it's almost like you're not interested in, as you said before, the mass movement of away from X, whatever that X might be, it might be Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, to Manyverse. But you're thinking like, hey, who is this user type? Who's wanting to use this? Because as we said before, Jared and I are both connected people so it's less Mm. interesting to us in terms of usage but as you can tell you're on the show it's interesting as technology and the idea of it so who's using this yeah so i mean one of the things that i already noticed here is that there's like an idea of building a service for some people but the reality is that scuttlebutt is built by people in scuttlebutt so it really does it's like it's a community of people who make their own things. Most of them are actually quite connected to the internet. The inventor of Scuttlebutt, Dominic, I mean, he himself lives on a boat and he doesn't have actually stable internet. And that's what kind of led him into researching offline related protocols. But what I'm trying to say is that there isn't a lot of sort of like corporate looks to the things that we build because um, they are not sort of built by corporate stuff i mean sort of like if you imagine like a very sort of corporate picture okay like an actual photograph 
it will look quite like stock pictures, you know, sort of bland, generic, and politically yeah. correct, right? So Scuttlebutt is like not that. It's like a photograph created by real dirty people. And it's more like human. It's more authentic. It's uh, more poor than what we typically put on, you know, display, right? We put very shiny things on display and iPhones and iPads and AirPods, whatever those are called. But then the actual human things are less shiny. And Scuttlebutt, you know, it doesn't have investors. It doesn't have like cryptocurrencies behind it. It's literally just a couple of people just building some stuff that they find are nice. It usually looks a bit ugly. And there's a lot of open source that looks like that. You know, it just looked kind of ugly. And what I'm building with Maniverse, it does have like a aesthetic that is a bit, you know, closer to the shiny stuff that we usually see, these sort of services and startups that come up. And a lot of people are actually within Scuttlebutt who are quite anti-capitalist. They're a little bit concerned that Miniverse is like going to become some kind of business just because it has this little bit taste of sort of shiny startup type of thingy. So I can talk about that as well, but it's more like, you know, yeah, that sort of the, the community is literally a lot of maker people and also activists and artivists. Uh, sorry, that word does not exist. Uh, artists. <laughs> I thought maybe I was out. I was out of the loop on a new word. I'm like, oh no, I don't even know what an artivist is. Artivists. <laughs> I'm so out of it. Well, that's actually a good word. Artivist. Not bad. Yeah, I like it. That's not bad. Like people who are activists through art. Mm, that's They've, pretty nice. I mean, they're out there. So now maybe you just coined a phrase. Yeah. Um. The the reason why why Miniverse looks a bit more shiny is just that I'm trying to replicate the look and feel of you know, mainstream social networks and just kind of like Mastodon is replicating a little bit the feel of Twitter. I'm just uh, doing that as well with something that looks like Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, uh, just so that people don't feel like uh, sort of to ease the user experience. So if you enter an, a new sort of app and it, it looks and feels like something that you already know, then you don't need to do the learning. You don't need to do any kind of cognitive effort so that's what i'm after like i'm after sort of this ease of use and that's why um that's why it looks kind of you know like a mainstream social network mm. but yeah the people who use it are very interesting yeah um i learned a lot from them and i changed a lot of my thinking and aligned a little bit of my ideology because i really got sort of impressed and convinced over time well, one thing that uh, for jared and i though we're in that camp also of iphone users Mm. And from what I understand, we're also locking ourselves out of your usage spectrum, at least for now. Mm. Get it on Google Play. Get it on Android. You're not dirty humans. <laughs> we're not dirty enough. We have clean iPhones. <laughs> what is Android? Uh, well, Android is like a Play Store, but for free and open source on oh. Android. You don't have other alternative app stores on iOS, unfortunately. That's a that's a big drawback of iOS, and like huge drawback. Yeah, for sure. Because... I mean, of course, you have a Windows, you can install whatever software you want. You don't need to go through the store. It's just crazy. It's crazy that there's only one app store. But even F-Droid is hard to install uh, if you don't know a little bit of technical things. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm aiming uh, Android besides the coverage of uh, developing countries. So it says not yet on iOS. So there is still hope for us. And let me just say that as part of the conversation here, we talked about how we're not necessarily your primary users because of our connectedness. That being said, I think maybe just the opportunity of being part of something that's different than you and, and 
and maybe a little weird and like you said dirty human like authentic a, ne- a social network that isn't a facebook or a twitter or even a mastodon which maybe has more you know more similarity in terms of the users maybe that's a good enough reason to you know give it a try even if you're not interested necessarily in all the off-grid aspects of it because you're always on the grid that is at least i think a good reason to check this out i think the other aspect of this though is also size of group for users so not just describing who might be interested because i mean theoretically i might be interested if the you know one of the core usages is like to create a small tight-knit network and that might just be me my wife family or very close people mm-hmm. and that might replace say for example on ios iMessages or something like that which is great but you know there's some drawbacks obviously around privacy potentially kind of trust apple a little bit more than others maybe and i say maybe in quotes because hey you never know yeah <laughs> uh, we don't know what, what what isn't out there yet um so my point is is that like the user type Sure, we can't use it because it's not iOS yet, but at some point it may or whatever. But the user might be somebody who's interested in, say, small, close-knit friends. And there's, you know, there's, there's other competing applications, but not the same principles like GroupMe, for example. GroupMe, you can create a small group. There's others that are like it. But yeah. the point I'm trying to make is that if the point is to have relationships that mimic more true real-world human relationships, then it might be like those that are really close to you rather than like those that are very distant from you in terms yeah. of acquaintances or connections. Yeah. So one of the interesting uh, things that you guys mentioned was um, how like authentic the relationships can be on this social network. And I think it's interesting to contrast that with, let's say Instagram, where the, the sort of point is like show off as much as you can. Yeah. And I think once you sort of remove companies and and for-profit efforts from a space like a social network, it's it's more a, a given that you will get more natural human experiences. For instance, you know, you're not going to have like an advertisement in the middle of your Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, that's like, that's one of the, I suppose, that's one of the cases in America where you still don't have a lot of companies interfering in that specific moment, right? They wait until midnight and then they get us on Black Friday. That's when they get us. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that with for-profit interference in human relationships, our human relationships are getting damaged with um, artificial behaviors, right? Such as showing off, um, looking for likes and the counter of followers or something like that. And once you build a space that's like very neutral, you're literally just building sort of like a living room or somewhere that, you know, is like neutral and you allow people to be themselves. Uh, one of the things I also like to mention is that if you use uh, this kind of network for your families and your close relatives, the nice benefit is that it's a really good archival uh, for all of your photos and all your uh, things. Because uh, the concern with like centralized services, let's say Google Photos or whatever, is that, okay, like, it's really nice to sort of categorize your pictures, but then it's still a service that's being run over time, and they could shut it down at some point, and Google loves to discontinue products, and kind of gives you a feeling that, oh, this is like, at some point, I would need to download all of these pictures and have it on my computer, right? That's like the immediate reaction. So, Scuttlebutt is already sort of downloaded on your computer. That's like, by design, it's always like that. It would actually be a really good archival system let's say for, you know, a diary of 
all of the baby pictures or something. It also would be tagged by timestamps and could have comments. And that would like serve forever. It would be there forever. It would be a good format. What happens when I drop my phone in the toilet? <laughs> oh, then it's backed up by uh, every all of your friends. So for instance, everything that I said is also stored in my friends' computers. So it's just enough that one of us has that data still. So we call it uh, not a cloud backup, but a crowd backup. Oh, Nice. In the sense that, like, even even private messages are also stored on my friend's computer, encrypted, so that they can't understand it. I'm uh, going to uh, the domain services right now. I'm buying iCrowd.com. iCrowd. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a good one. It kind of reminds me of the um, some of the technologies. I don't know if they're still out there, but five or ten years ago, where you would set up a Drobo or some sort of hard drive you know, at your friend's house. And you'd have yours at your house and you'd set them up to basically be your, instead of having a backblaze or some sort of third party service, mm -hmm. you'd back up your stuff to their house and they'd back up their stuff to your house mm -hmm. on some sort of a software. And that would be a, that'd be your own little iCrowd right there. It's so funny, dude, that you say that because when we have this backstage networking conversation, eventually Ooh. that's what my neighbor and I were talking about because we both live, we live close enough that I could just like run some fiber to his house and we can have our own little land basically and i can back up yeah. to him and he can back up to me and but the bad thing is we're literally direct neighbors so yeah my fire might be his fire at some point if, if there ever is one <laughs> yeah. yeah also the the act of backing up is annoying you know it's just a thing that you do in case things go bad but just the day-to-day -day use of scuttlebutt is backup so you don't have to ever think like oh yeah i need to back up my scuttlebutt it's just keep on using it and have some friends that you know it, this this has actually happened like a couple of us have let's say the computer has died or something they just need to have their private key uh stored somewhere and we're investigating you know ways how we can store that nicely one of them is just by having a, a big seed sort of like 12 words you know that you write down or memorize and that's enough to recover your, let's say your account or your private and public key mm -hmm. Um, there's different ways of backing that up. Another one would be also through your friends, which is essentially splitting your uh, crypto identity into, let's say, five parts and then giving uh, one part to each friend, each close friend. And then once you want to recover your uh, private uh, and public key, then you just ask three of those five, you know, some kind of quorum of your friends. And then they get together and they can restore your account so you could literally have no passwords uh, and that just in it would be enough to just have your friends so let's talk a little bit as we close up here about the technologies maybe even specific inside of manyverse it's an android app are you using stock android stuff or are you using web technologies maybe give us a peek underneath the covers of how you're building this and maybe even some of the the ways that you're implementing the scuttlebutt protocol yeah um the big challenge was actually to run a server on the phone. So like essentially, you know, with a peer-to-peer -peer protocol, every app or every node is a client and a server. So of course, like running servers on phones are, are not a typical thing to do. And also there was a lot of Node.js libraries in uh, Scuttlebutt that were useful and they were working. And I wanted to use those Node.js libraries on mobile. So I'm talking about running Node.js on mobile. And that was like a, big um, question mark for me at the beginning 
But eventually I found some libraries. Uh, well, I, I, I first I built my own library for running Node.js on React Native because uh, Miniverse is React Native based. And then I found a better library called uh, Node.js Mobile, which allows you to run uh, Node.js on both uh, Android and iOS. It's really interesting, actually, the things you could build with servers on phones. It's actually quite, quite exciting. Um, huh. So one, one small example, I built a very simple, let's say, app store or installer of apps called Dat Installer, which essentially serves, um, sort of seeds the apps that you can install. So kind of seeds and leeches, kind of like in Torrent, and then you can get app updates through that. And it's also one way how I publish uh, the new versions of, of Miniverse. You can install it through that installer or the Play Store. So that's kind of what's going on in Miniverse. There's a server running there, and it talks to other phones, which are also server servers. And yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of more details going on there, but that's the <laughs> that's very that's the heart of the technology. And the UI is uh, React Native and my own framework called CycleJS. Very cool. We will link up the repo I'm looking through your package, JSON, as we speak. And I guess I could have answered the question myself. React Native there under the hood. Lots of cycle mm. projects, as you mentioned. Uh, interestingly, I guess maybe this is noteworthy, maybe not. But uh, hosted on GitLab, is this a uh, ideological decision or just a convenience? What's, uh, what's your thoughts around GitLab here? Well, a little bit of both. I try to sometimes uh, spread out things. So instead of putting all my eggs in one basket, you know, yeah, I use GitLab sometimes. I use GitHub sometimes. I I don't I'm, I don't have like a, a structure. When do I use which? But in this case, I actually explicitly wanted to have the GitLab boards and also service desk. It's quite uh, useful. So, for instance, the bug reports that we get right now. They come uh, as emails. So people send an email to a sort of address that GitLab provides, and then it reaches this thing called service desk, which becomes essentially confidential issues. Hmm. So I can answer those issues, and it's confidential. I, I don't think um, I don't think GitHub has confidential issues that come through email. You know, it's quite nice. Yeah, I mean, GitLab just has a bit more features, and I I like it. And it's it's also a bit more um, let's say like um, future-proof in the sense that I could also self-host my mm -hmm. GitLab instance if I wanted to. I don't think I can do that with GitHub. Right. I think it's also open source to a big degree. Yeah, that's essentially the, the motivation behind. That's a cool feature. So is that email address, is that integrated into the app? Like you can submit those things through the app and emails or they're just, you just pop up a mail to how does they actually get those issues sent in yeah it would pop up a, a mail to i mean one of the difficulties of not having analytics in the app is well sometimes you need to know what's going on right sometimes yeah. when bugs happen yeah and because there's a big focus not maybe a primary but a big focus on privacy people who want to use this app they would be concerned of analytics so i think it's just more sort of respectful that of course as an email, the users explicitly giving like their data as a message, right? Like consent, basically. Yeah, yeah. Explicit consent, yeah. Very good, Andre. Hey, any questions that we forgot to ask or things you've been waiting? Just why have they not asked me this yet? And you want to get out there about Miniverse or Scuttlebutt or anything else that's on your mind? Um, well, nothing that can be answered in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, that sounds like we got to have you, have you come back for some more deep conversations around these things, because I know you have lots of thoughts. I think, actually, I'm looking back through the stories link on Scuttlebutt website, the different use cases and people writing about it. And I think, actually, your post a year or so ago was my introduction to it. So mm-hmm. you definitely have influenced many through your writings. Uh, what's good places for people to keep up with you if they don't know you personally, can't get you on many verse because I don't know how personally, but maybe you're on Twitter, it seems. You write around the web. Do you have a homepage we can send people to? Yeah, my webpage is uh, stalts.com and I do tweet quite often, but like I do post a lot of my, you know, personal insights and personal stories on Scuttlebutt. So there's more that you can learn about me on Scuttlebutt. I wish I could mention a Scuttlebutt server that's open to get my data so any stranger could get my data on Scuttlebutt. I just don't want to do that uh, publicly yet <laughs> Fair enough. because there's some technical details to solve with this kind of server that, you know, if it would go viral, it would probably make life more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. But at some point, what I'm trying to say is that at some point it will be very easy for any stranger to get my date on Scuttlebutt. Well, one thing you said earlier was that you're doing this from what I can understand solo, but you do have the opportunity to become a backer, which is donating either money to buy the project and or you more time as you mentioned up in Collective earlier in the call, mm, yeah. but also the option to contribute. So are, are you looking for contributions to this? Where are some of the projects needs? Where, if someone's listening to this, could you use additional help on certain things? Oh, absolutely. I, there are some issues that I tagged as, you know, contributions are welcomed or something like that. And I think the difficulty is that the technical stack is, is quite advanced. I mean, it has React Native, it has mm-hmm. Android, it has uh, Node.js on mobile, it has TypeScript and Psycho.js. It's such a unique combination that is not easy to get started with, but I definitely do value contributions. I, I would actually, I was actually expecting that people would have been sending PRs uh, already, but that hasn't been the case, actually. I haven't gotten that many PRs, uh, so I'd le- definitely welcome uh, such, especially if they're like small and easy to review and merge. And also, like, I, I do explicitly mention that once, let's say, I am fully funded, then I would start welcoming um, these contributions on a paid basis. And then once the donations are big enough, then possibly hiring another team worker. I mean, that's definitely where I want to go next. And it could be possible if we get some bigger grants and we're sending some grant applications once in a while. And yeah. Is this accurate then on your Open Collective where you've got sort of the budget laid out? I love this about Open Collective, by the way, where you can say, you know, for example, there's like a budget timeline, so to speak, from left to right. Yeah. There's a green portion, which is your actual, uh, your estimated annual budget. It seems to be in pounds. Is that correct? Is that is that euros or pounds? No, that's uh, euros. Euros. Sorry about that. Obviously, there's 36,000 euros to have you full-time per year, plus contract 50,000 a year. But, you know, there's Quite a distance between left, green, to right, and blue Yeah. if you're looking at the Open Collective. So, you know, hey, if you're listening to this and you want to contribute, one way is through a donation through Open Collective or via contribution via open source. Pick your, you know, pick your flavor, right? Or both. Why not? Yeah, and also just tweeting about it also helps. Yeah. Oddly enough, that is not... That's on the grid. <laughs> yeah. I love how I love how there's always these ideas to go off the grid, but it, there's never a complete disconnection. 
as you mentioned, you tweet quite a bit too. No, yeah, and it, it's actually not about rejecting the grid, it's more about complementing it. Right. Yeah, options. Yeah, yeah. Walter, thank you so much for your time today. It was, it was awesome talking through Scuttlebutt, the off-grid, as we just mentioned, kind of notions, great big ideas you have, especially on open source, I love that. So thank you for your time. Yeah, and thanks a lot for inviting. I, I think Changelog is a really good podcast for this. Great. Thank you. Awesome, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Changelog. Hey, guess what? We have discussions on every single episode now. So head to changelog.com to discuss this episode. And if you want to help us grow this show, reach more listeners and influence more developers, do us a favor and give us a rating or review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you use Overcast, give us a star. If you tweet, tweet a link. If you make lists of your favorite podcasts, include us in it. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, GoCD, and Get Prime. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, our monitoring service, and Linode, our cloud server of choice. This episode is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. And our music is done by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll see you again soon. Congratulations, you've listened all the way to the end of the show. And guess what? Got a little surprise for you. Here's a preview of Brain Science, our upcoming podcast coming out very soon. The easiest way to subscribe is to subscribe to our master feed at thechangelog.com slash master. Get all of our podcasts in one single feed, plus some extras that only hit the master feed, including Brain Science. Brain Science is a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain so we can understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and this thing we call the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives? Here we go. As humans, one of the things that separates us from any other animal out there is the fact that we have language, we have words, and we have super powerful words that truly change how we feel and how we make other people feel. If the words we say have so much potential to influence ourselves and the world around us, how do we begin to understand the power of words? So words really are the thing that separates us from all other animals. Because, right, sharks, bats, dogs, lizards, they don't talk. And this is really critical when it comes to managing our moods and our feelings. One of the things um, that I sort of talk about, or even I mentioned earlier, about the way in which we file things in our mind according to feelings, this is exactly how we differentiate it, too. Thinking about uh, an example like with professional athletes, they you might say that they get anxious like before mm-hmm. a race or before you know uh, a run or a dive. But using that word, it, it's not really a threat, right? But their their brain would be like, oh, I'm nervous, and now I start this whole sequence of events in my body. Whereas if I just change the word to like I'm anticipating or I'm excited, it creates a different sort of rollout 
of emotions as well as physiological responses. I mean, I'm anxious about going to Disneyland is not usually what we say, right? I'm excited. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it then puts a lid on or files things differently in our mind, which then changes how we feel about it. So in my field, in psychology, I would say, we always say name it to tame it. The better I can name different feelings, the more I can tame whatever emotion that is. And so then I'm not really stuck living in this sort of mammal and reptile lane where I'm always just flipping my lid, I'm reactive, I'm angry, or I'm sad. But rather I can go, I recognize this is how I'm feeling, or like I'm, I'm afraid of some other threat, like losing my job. And I can go, you know what? Here's the words I can use to talk to myself about that fear so that I'm not just stuck feeling afraid of a possible threat, which has never occurred yet. You use this concept too to, to say customized thinking. I'm not sure I fully understand what you mean by customized thinking. What do you mean by that? Well, because we are human, we do have the power of choice, which is super powerful. Like nobody has to tell you how you need to think or how you need to feel, right? And like your version of success might be very different than mine, which is going to impact my my choices and the direction I'm headed. And so when you think about customized, right? I mean, you can customize a car, you can customize your order at a restaurant. Like it really is tailored specifically to you and going, how do I want to think and how do I want to feel? One example I consider is I want to always, I want every day of the week to feel like I do on the weekend. Because to me, the weekend feels great. I'm with my family. I don't, I'm not sort of running things with such a tight timeline. And there's just a different sort of ethereal vibe to the weekend. Right. And I think, why does that only have to exist on the weekend? Yeah. Well, I want that every day. Why is that? I'm with every day too. <laughs> well, and I think part of it is really our attitude and our expectations. I mean, there are legitimate threats all around us, but it doesn't help me do me or do my life any better if I am only focused on threats. So I want to practice changing the channel in my mind that says, hey, yeah, I see that potential job loss, but I also see I'm with my family right now. And right now, Nobody can take sort of what I've been through and how I feel away from me. I I'm in charge of how I feel. So I'm going to do things that actually contribute to feeling better. So how, how do we apply this name entertainment idea to this model then? Because maybe if you name the week the weekend, can you change how you feel about it? Because that's really what it's about. It's like, how do we take, you know, the labels we apply things to things the names we give things, the words we use, the choices, what I think we might call nuance. I'm not really sure how you, how, how you put that into play with the power of words, but the difference between, like you said before, being anxious or being excited, you know, fundamentally it's almost the same feeling, but you know, from a nuance level, it's very different. You know, it's, it's one direction or the other of excitement, you know, negative excitement potentially or positive excitement. How do we apply that to customized thinking? Well, I think that's a great way to say it, Adam. I really like that nuance because what we're looking for, even as I talk about the different brains, we want a symphony. I mean, I'm not going to fire the woodwind section because I don't like a violin, 
right? So I don't want to fire a certain part of my brain like, you're not really helpful. I don't need to see that. But what we need is a sense of congruence. And so, sure, not every day of the week can feel exactly like the weekend. So I'm not going to say this is how I feel, but I have to actually believe it for it to impact my mind, my brain, and my body in the way in which I desire it to. And so I might use the words like, I strive for every day to have a feeling that reminds me of exactly how I feel on the weekend so that I don't lose sight that like every day really is a gift and I get to enjoy every day of my life to some degree. And so another example might be I'm living out in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of people have negative feelings about the weather. Imagine that. (laughs) But so if someone were to say that they just need to learn to love it, that's going to create what we call cognitive dissonance. It doesn't fit. So it doesn't matter how much I'm like, oh, I I do love the gray. I do love the clouds. It's not going to jive with me. And so it won't stick. So instead, I can say, I love the way in which the rain creates the green. And in the summer, when it is green, it is amazing. This idea of learning to live with it, though, get over it. Uh, It is what it is. Like, There's so many phrases we use to say just that, like just learn to live with it. What is it called again? Cognitive dissonance. And what does that mean when you play it out? It doesn't go together. Okay. So that if you're like, oh, just just do it. You just need to get over it. Like that really isn't helpful either because your body is giving you a signal and, and your brain is telling you, I don't like this sensation. I don't like how this feel. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, I just hate the gray and the gray is just overwhelming. And so we have to go, well, what's my emotional buy-in? Like, what what do I like? How does that even allow me to enjoy something else? And so I'm going to look at going, you know what? I really like that I get to wear warm clothes or I really do love my coffee because it's for such a long time, it's gray and rainy. I want to be inside by a fire drinking my coffee. Right. <laughs> and so how can I look for going, you know what? If I do these things I I might not want to do, I do get some more of what I do want to do. And so it's really almost like a bartering system in your brain of saying, if you do this thing you don't like, you get this thing you you do like. Or, you know, I know you don't have to make yourself do this thing unless you can see a way in which it actually benefits you or speaks to you emotionally. Everything, Adam really has to have this emotional buy-in. Mm. And if there's no good emotion, no really, the primary neuro, neurochemical in our brain is dopamine for feeling good. I don't get some hit of dopamine. My brain's going to be like, it's not worth it. And I'm not going to do it. Period. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, 
brain science with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelog.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelog.com slash master. Thank you.